Hi, Lenny. Nancy. Welcome to episode 61 of the Front Porch Book Club. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month. We like to dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. Grab your book and iced tea and join us on the front porch. Well, Lenny, it's September and our book is The Rabbit Hutch by Tess Gunty. The novel tells the story of a collection of oddball residents of a low-income housing project in Vaca Vale, Indiana. Vaca Vale was once an automotive manufacturing powerhouse, but like many Rust Belt cities, it's fallen on hard times, as have many of its residents. Our focus in the book is on Blondine Watkins, a graduate of a negligent foster care system, She lives with three young men, also former foster care wards. We learn about her lecherous high school teacher, a developer who plans to build on the only remaining green space in the city, and a child star who has recently died. (laughs) Yeah, and a bunch of other characters that live in the rabbit hutch, too. Yeah, This book is a New York Times bestseller, National Book Award winner, And it was also named a Best Book of the Year by the New York Times, NPR, Time, Oprah Daily, and People. This is Tess Gunty's debut novel. It starts out with the following. On a hot night in apartment C4, Blondine Watkins exits her body. She is only 18 years old, but she has spent most of her life wishing for this to happen. The mystics call this experience the transverberation of the heart or the seraph's assault, but no angel appears to Blondine. There is, however, a bioluminescent man in his 50s. Okay, Lenny, I have to know, our August book, The Marriage Portrait, started with the protagonist realizing her husband planned to kill her. So in this book, at the start, we learn that our protagonist basically is dying, What were your thoughts as you opened up this book? I was so confused. (laughs) I was like, what does Nancy have me reading now? I am so lost. First of all, I thought this was a dissociative thing that she was experiencing. Okay. Some kind of transcendental meditation. I didn't really take that as she was dying. I can see where you did, though, based on what was reading, but I was lost. (laughs) I'm like, what? (laughs) That's interesting. For me, I thought it was a great opening, and I did take it that she was dying. It kept me intrigued through all the digressions, because like you said, there's just a whole cast of characters that we meet in this novel, some of whom we can't figure out what their connection is to Blondine. And some of them, aside from living in the rabbit hutch with her, there really seems like there is no connection. They're just more examples of people living lives that have lots of challenges. Right. So what did you think about Blondine as this book was opening and as you're getting to know her throughout the novel? To back way up, I read the first I'm going to say two or three chapters or more. And I'm like, I don't understand this book. This book is not written the way I think books should be written. (laughs) I'm lost. 
this is what's called a literary novel. So she does use a very interesting form with introducing us to different characters. The narrative sometimes is a traditional narrative that is describing what's going on, what people are saying. Sometimes it's newspaper clippings or obituary notices online. So it is a very different kind of book than we've read in the past. Okay. So that explains that the author knows how to write a book because I wasn't sure at the beginning. (laughs) Nancy, I had to go back to the beginning of the book and write down who lived in what apartment and who they were because she doesn't even always use the names. Like it might say mom, baby, man. Yeah. So I was completely confused. I didn't understand where the book was going and I couldn't figure out who lived on top of who. Yeah. It all does come together, however. (laughs) I didn't realize I was reading a literary form and this was the way some people write a book. (laughs) So I had to reread the first three chapters and then take some notes. And then at some point, things start clicking together, all these different people and the story. And then like the other book we read last month, we're going backwards and getting people's backstories yeah. that then emerge forward and connect and make this into a novel that I do understand. <laughs> so you asked me, what do I think about Blondine? One thing is that she appears way older than her age. Yeah, We get the feeling that she is extremely bright. Her teachers believe she's extremely bright. The way she talks is well past her youth. Mm -hmm. So you walk away going, she's a bright girl, but boy, she's got some challenges and she is emotionally and socially very immature. Mm -hmm. She really is struggling to find out who she is. And kind of going through life without a lot of strong, positive adults around her to guide her. She's kind of seems like she's out there wandering in the wilderness, trying to figure things out for herself. I don't think it's a good setup to think, gee, maybe the best thing for me at 17 or 18 years of age would be to drop out of high school and move in with three boys. Yeah. So she's extremely bright, but socially she's behind her peers, I believe. Her take on the world is colored by a very bruised upbringing. She's been in the foster care system because her mother's died of a oxycodone overdose and her father is in jail. And I mean, she never even thinks about or refers to her father. We learn that more from Tescunti's voice rather than from her The foster care system has been unmindful at best. Her high school theater teacher has seduced her and then ghosted her entirely. She's beautiful, as we hear others describe her repeatedly, but she seems to place zero weight on that. That is meaningless to her, which makes her an interesting character because beauty is so important in our society. 
it's probably the temptation to trade on one's beauty, but she has absolutely no interest on that, never thinks about it at all. When people are telling her she's beautiful, for her, it's more of an irritant than anything else. She loves reading about medieval women saints. She also loves the environment. And there's one remaining place of beauty in Vacavale that is just about to be developed. And she is trying to figure out how she can keep that from happening. There are a lot of themes that are introduced. She is the character who represents themes on a class system, even within a Rust Belt city and systems that are not kind to people who are brilliant and trying to do the right thing, but has no support, like you said. Well, I don't think she really fits into the high school peer group. No. She's way too smart to be a junior when we pick up way beyond her years. The way she talks and the things that she is interested in and and spirituality, her words are going over my head. I have no idea what she's talking about. You don't see her giggling and passing notes and talking about the dance or the boys or let's go to the football game. This is not her experience. So she's not really connected with her peers very well. And she ends up, oh dear, connecting with this theater teacher instead. And that's a whole messy situation. I'm interested in hearing you use the word to describe him. Lecherous. Lecherous is the word you use. Yeah. He kind of got a feeling that he singled her out because he knew he could. Oh, definitely. He's the prototypical predator and that here is a vulnerable young woman who has no connections with really any of the other students. She has no family that is taking care. She's basically alone in the world. And he can spar with her on some level. Yeah. However, she's even smarter than he is by far. Like more brilliant, I would say. Definitely. But again, socially, emotionally, he is more mature than she is. Well, somewhat, although he's such a narcissist, what he seems to be looking for is people to adore him. He's described as somewhat handsome. He's the cool teacher that all of the kids like. He sees Blondine, whose name at that point is Tiffany, and he wants to be adored because he is not feeling adored by his wealthy wife. Tiffany idolizes him. This is the first time an adult seems to really be taking an interest in her and cares for her. And that's just catnip to her, of course. Right, right. She's been thirsting for that. So did you believe he did not do the same thing with Zoe? Okay. There's a part of the book where probably this is not the first time that he has done this. Right. I absolutely saw him as somebody who would have done this before. Yeah, he totally denies it to Blondine because Zoe has reached out to Blondine and said, so I see he got to you too. Yeah. Blondine never replies, never really knows 
exactly what that might totally mean. But when she asks him, he says, oh, no, no. No, you're a liar and a cheat. There is a void inside of him. He needed these little girls. I'm sorry. When you're in high school, you're a little girl. Yeah. Blondine probably still wanted to feel special. I think she thought, yeah, it, he probably did. But I can see her being very gullible thinking, no, we had something special. Yeah. It was probably just me. And I don't know. You took it the same way, Nance? I did. I doubted his protestations of innocence when it came to Zoe. Because we do spend some time in the book inside his head. And he seems to be struggling against these feelings. Even as they're presented, he's never referring back to another girl or anything. So I think it is ambiguous. But I think old James Yeager is just one big walking predator. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Doggone it. He did that to his wife, too. The disastrous trail that he leads people in his life. Yeah. All right. Should we talk about bunnies? Well, let's talk about the bunnies. So the bunnies are a recurring motif throughout this book. The affordable housing building that Blondine lives in was originally built for workers of the now shuttered Zorn automobile plant. And the building was named at the time that it was built La Lapionnaire, which is French for the bunny. But now everyone refers to it just as the rabbit hutch. So bunnies are everywhere in this book. And even the epigram at the beginning is a quote from a woman who is featured in Roger and Me, the documentary about Flint, Michigan, and its economic decline. In the documentary, this woman says about rabbits. If you don't sell them as pets, you got to get rid of them as meat. If you don't have 10 separate cages for them, they start fighting. Then the males castrate other males. They chew their balls right off. Love so there is a violent and tough beginning to this book. So rabbits and other animals in this book are either dead or dying, except the rats, which we are told surpass Vacavale's human population by about 30,000. So for me, I wondered whether the rabbits that keep appearing and even all of the other dead and dying animals are trapped in an overcrowded world and are forced to fight each other to survive. I watched a video of Tess Gunty, and she said she was interested in writing about how structural violence generates personal violence, which really resonated to me. And I think the bunnies are like pawns in a system of violence. What did you think about all the bunnies and the, the rabbit motif in this? Well, I did not know that Tess said that. I can see how she used that to talk about structural violence. I wasn't sure about the bunny thing. That was something that I didn't quite get, but I thought of the bunnies as being more a reflection of life. Oh. I was thinking of fluffy little white bunnies running around, and there's sort of an innocence there when I think about bunnies, and procreation, and life, and spring, and newness. So as the bunnies appear, and as one dies in the hands of the boys, 
that that is like killing innocence. Yeah. And interviews with Tess Gunty. She says that South Bend, Indiana is where she grew up and her inspiration for this fictional town. South Bend is where Studebakers were manufactured. Dying cities, Nance. What are your thoughts on this? My bachelor's degree is in urban and regional planning. I'm so interested (laughs) to hear your thoughts on the city. So I thought it was a really great representation of third tier Rust Belt cities in the United States who are trying to figure out how, as a city, they can survive. There are so many communities, large and small, who had major industries that were once, I don't know, like the thimble-making capital of the world. (laughs) And then that thimble manufacturer closes, thousands of people lose their job, and that little town is never the same. Our little town of Woolrich that we spent eight years living in from elementary all the way through high school, it was Woolrich Woolen Mills. And it was the mill where many, many people in the town were employed. Not too many years after we left, the mill closed. And that changes that town forever. So I really did like that Tess Gunty shines a spotlight on the experience of communities that were once thriving, relatively healthy communities, when there is very little economic opportunity in a city, what do the people at the very lowest rung of education and economics, what are their options? And I think what Tess Gunty is telling us is that these are people who have very few options in life. There are a few that are employed, but they're working in jobs where they have no power and that they get no meaning from. Other people are unemployed. We meet a homeless woman. You know, these are just all people who have been abandoned by the economic system. And again, the thought of structural violence, here is the violence that is being done to individuals because of the structural economic inequity in the community. And then I did also like the juxtaposition of James Yeager and his wife, who is very wealthy, and to Blondine, they live in a huge mansion. And she, like, she's never even been in a house as big and beautiful as their house. It seems absolutely unattainable to her. That happens in these communities also. You still have this crust of affluence. The wealth that Yeager's wife has is generational wealth. Mm. That wealth is not a product of a healthy economic system within that city. That is just leftover wealth. So I thought that it was really interesting. I love that she was exploring a community like this and just this whole idea of how are people in these towns living. Yeah, the depiction of the landscape, the properties where she walks, all very vivid, I think. And then there's this beautiful oasis just outside the gate that is green and lush and beautiful. 
and untouched, undamaged. And that's the part that Blandine is trying to keep alive. It's almost like that is hope. Mm -hmm. There's something out there that's not a part of my existence, but I can see it and I can experience it sometimes. For Blandine, this developer is ruining the last beautiful part of Vaca Vale. For the developer, his argument is, no, this is economic opportunity. This is good housing. This will bring people back to our city. And it seems like there's really no easy answers in this for a lot of communities. But it does create an interesting backdrop and other story that is underneath Blondine's life. She's got her story, but underneath there's this really interesting environment and what she is navigating. All right. We need to talk about the roommates, Nancy. Okay. Uh, Jack and Malik, spoiler alert. One of the three is the one who stabs Blondine. Very interesting characters. All three of these guys have their own strengths. Yeah. And their weaknesses, their kids, they're still trying to find themselves. They are quite damaged in lots of different ways here because of the way that they were raised. So the four of them together do not do so well. Did you have a feeling early on when you were reading this, who was actually going to be the murderer? Or does it really matter? Because they're all accomplices, really. No, I didn't have a sense of who it was going to be. I didn't even have a sense it would necessarily be one of the roommates. Right. That not knowing kept me turning the pages in a way because here is this hanging sword of Damocles that we know something terrible is going to happen and we're being introduced to all of these people who all have their own problems. It seems honestly like many people in the book are at a breaking point and any of them could be at a breaking point where somehow Blondine has crossed paths with them or they want something from her or whatever that she ends up being killed. I thought these three boy roommates were written so tenderly that we want to take care of them because they are such damaged young men. And we just think they have not been given any guidance in life. And we're rooting for them too. We want Malik, who is handsome and wants to be an actor in Hollywood. Go try it, Malik. There's nothing for you here in Vaca Vale. Like, do something. And then there's sensitive Todd, who draws pictures. And we wish that he could get out of his own shell and blossom. And Jack, who is trying, and he and Blondine kind of share a tender moment, and they both are excited that maybe there's something there for each other, but they neither one of them can get out of their own ways to explore that. So I felt like I was kind of rooting for all four roommates, Blondine being one of them. I got to a point in the book where I was realizing that it was going to be at least one of the roommates. And that was heartbreaking to me. Oh, you like these boys way more than I do. 
Oh, really? Yeah, I think you were looking at them more from like a motherly, yeah, tender moment. And I was looking at them, sir. One of these guys is a rapist. Who's going to do it? So I didn't. I didn't have the same emotional attachment to see any of them succeed because I knew that one of them was going to victimize somebody. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it seems like all three of them did. So I don't. Yeah. I really don't think it mattered who actually used the knife. They were all in it together. There was something nice about each of them. Yeah. Wow. I did not have that emotional attachment at all. You know what? I kind of wish I would have read it the way you did, Nance. But when you open up the book the way she opened it up, it's kind of like a whodunit. Mm -hmm. And who hurts her? I mean, we know that she is going to be hurt in some way and I didn't even think even after the stabbing does she live for me it wasn't a preordained idea that it was going to be one of the roommates because then there's Moses who's the son of this child star from the 50s who has just died and he has so much rage toward his mother and the way he that he was raised. And he's going to the apartment either right above or below Blondine's to scare poor Joan, who works at the obituary writing website. I think, well, maybe it's Moses that does it. Maybe it's James Yeager, her teacher. There are just so many people who have used and abused her that Tess Gunty left me space to care about these boys and the violence that had been done to them before realizing that one of them was going to be the person that assaults Blondine. And of course, Blondine also assaults him. I mean, she's choking him. And so it really is like a rabbit hutch. It really is like the Flint, Michigan, Roger and me story where they are just attacking one another for various reasons based on their beliefs and their histories and the best way to try to continue to survive. Uh So what did you think at the end with Joan, this very lonely 40-something single woman making a connection with Blondine at the end? I, I did like that a lot. It was like maybe in this ugly world where people are lonely and isolated in an abandoned town, maybe here is a connection of friendship that can help them both. So she doesn't die. No. This was a human connection that neither one of them wanted anything from the other. So it was the opposite of capitalism, I felt like. It was like maybe there was a possibility just for some true affection here. Mm. However, Chastity Valley is definitely going to be developed at this point. They've had the big ceremony. So Blondine has lost her little eco-terrorism attempts at stopping that. But ultimately, it felt like a difficult book with some hope at the end. Some hope. You like the book, I can tell more than what I did. Yeah. I don't think I've ever called you mid-book and said, I don't understand this book. Why am I reading it? (laughs) Like I did with this one. I was confused by it. It's kind of a depressing environment, a depressing dismal life that she is leading but I like your take on the ending that there's humanity out there that is providing her with some kind of support in life 
when everything else is failing. Yeah. I do have hope for her that she had enough background and she had enough going for her that she could make something of herself. I just want her to get her GED and then apply to a local college. Fine. It's not going to be an Ivy League that that she probably could have gone to had she graduated from this fancy private school where she was a scholarship student. Fine. But just a local college, get her degree, and then I'll tell you, Blondine can do anything. Right, right. Yeah, you've, you just want her to, to get her GED and get on with it, but she's stuck. She's yeah. stuck right now, yeah. Yeah. But I think Joan will help her. You do? I do think Joan will help her. What does Joan have that could possibly help Blondine? Joan is stuck, too. Joan is stuck because she is so inwardly focused and not confident. And Blondine is confident and outwardly focused. So I think they're going to complement one another. And I think they're going to balance each other out. That caring about Blondine is going to get Joan out of her shell. And for Blondine, having an adult just truly care about her will be a huge benefit for her. Yeah. I look forward to continuing to talk to you about this book. I've opened my eyes here and some of the areas that I was confused about. So for that, I thank you (laughs) for helping me to make more sense of things like bunnies, (laughs) just kind of your take on this character. We've walked away again with two different perspectives on some of the characters. So it's always interesting. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening. If you want to go to our website, we'll have show notes there. Our website is frontporchbookclub.com, and you can also sign up for our monthly newsletter. Our episodes come out twice a month on the first and third Wednesday of each month. So, Lenny, in our latest newsletter, by the way, have to mention that people who are subscribed to the newsletter got the inside link to Nebraska's new world record. Which is what? Our Nebraska volleyball team from the University of Nebraska played at our football stadium, Memorial Stadium. The stadium was completely full, largest attendance ever, and we broke the world record for attendance at any women's sporting event in the world. What? Yeah. Wow. 92,003 people in attendance, and that is more than have ever attended any women's sporting event at any level in the world. We broke the record that was a soccer game in Spain. Oh my. So why the big attendance? Because Nebraskans are crazy about their volleyball team. Oh, did the ladies win their game? They did. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) They have a happy ending. (laughs) Yeah. Aw. Well, congratulations to them. I love to watch volleyball. Yeah. If you sign up for our (laughs) newsletter, you will get important little bits of information like that. (laughs) All right, Lenny, see you next time. Okay, bye. Bye. Oi, oi, (laughs) oi. That's all I can say. Oi, oi, oi. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.